All right, and our children can head back to Transformation Station with our workers there in the back. Hope they have a great time there this morning. And uh, for the rest of us, you can open up your Bible to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be starting in chapter 3 this morning and in verse 21. So that's Luke 3, um, 21, and that's on page 859 of the Bibles that we provided for you this morning. You can find it in every village and city on the planet. You can find it in lecture halls, dormitories, and on quaint walks through the park. Television, technology, Main Street, and Wall Street, it surfaces all over the place. In our thoughts, in our actions and the very deepest motivations of our hearts. It is all around us, and it appeals to that which is in us. What am I talking about? Temptation. Temptation is that which we would love to ignore if only we could. It is the consistent reality that we're faced with all the time, no matter where we are, where we go, what's on our agenda, temptation. Russ Moore, in his book, Tempted and Tried, says this, sums it up by saying, you are being tempted right now, and so am I. Think about that. You are being tempted right now, and so am I, even in this moment while you're listening, while I'm speaking, temptation. And so if that's the case, if, if we are being tempted just incessantly as we go through life, we were called to live our lives for God and his glory, then the question becomes, that how do we deal with temptation? How can we conquer temptation? The Gospel of Luke is going to help us with that this morning. We're going to see that we can conquer temptation through the triumph of Christ. Conquer temptation through the triumph of Christ. I've titled our sermon this morning, Triumph Over Temptation. And I want you to notice that this could be both descriptive and serve as a command. And that is intentional, by the way. You say, why is that? Well, first and foremost, this is a declaration, a statement of, of fact, a reality, what we see here in the text, because this passage on the baptism and genealogy and consequent uh, temptation in the wilderness of Christ is not so much to help us how we are to do our little checklist and fighting temptation in our life as much as it is given to show us that Jesus is the sinless Son of God. Now, it's in light of that reality that we can find the resources to conquer temptation in our own life. So it is a great secondary benefit, but I want you to see that. This is, this is both a, a statement of Christ's temptation over, triumph over temptation, and at the same time a call to us to triumph over temptation ourselves. And I want you to give us two primary encouragements as we work our way through the text this morning. Uh, so we're going to pick up in verses 21 through 23 of chapter 3. And the, the first encouragement for us is this, to believe in the Son 
who triumph through the Father's love and the Spirit's fullness. And we're going to see the Father's love and the Spirit's fullness right here in the baptism of Christ. So let's read verses 21 through 23 together. This is what Luke writes. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. As we saw last week, John the Baptist was out in the wilderness, a voice crying, prepare the way for the Lord. And people were coming to John by the masses, coming to be baptized by him. And we see here that even as the crowds were being baptized, many in the crowds were being baptized, Jesus also comes to John to be baptized. Now Luke doesn't give us all the details that Matthew does, but Matthew gives us the natural response of John. John's saying, hold up, Jesus, wait, I should be baptized by you. You should not be baptized by me. What's going on here? And Jesus tells John, look, this is to fulfill all righteousness. You say, well, what on earth does that mean? Well, scholars have debated this for centuries. What what does Jesus mean? He says it's to fulfill all righteousness. Some scholars think that he was identifying with the sin of Israel in his baptism. Jesus, of course, had no reason to repent. He was sinless. And we even know this from the Gospel of John, comparing with Scripture with Scripture. When he came to be baptized, John makes this loud and clear, because what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the sinless Lamb of God. So Jesus had no reason to repent. Why was he coming to be baptized? Maybe it wasn't to be identifying with Israel's sin. And then others say maybe he was validating the ministry of John the Baptist. Maybe that's it. I think there's a deeper reason going on. We're going to see this as the the story unfolds. I think what Luke is doing and what Jesus is, is, is saying when he's saying he's fulfilling all righteousness is to show that he is the coming servant of the Lord, the Messiah who would save people from their sin. And so he is foreshadowing his own death as this future suffering servant. And let me just say, this, this, is, this baptism is so central. It's a, it's a practice of the church from the very beginning. When the disciples began to preach the gospel in Acts, they said, repent and be baptized. So let me just ask you this morning, have you been baptized? Have you, as a, a follower, have you, have you received Christ and then said, you know what, I'm placing my trust in him and I'm going to follow in the step of obedience in believer's baptism? Because here's the beautiful thing. Look, if, if, if you're wrestling with this, if you're a new follower of Christ, maybe if you're considering the claims of Christianity and you feel like you're about ready to place your faith in Christ and confess him as Lord, I want to ask you what's holding you back from being baptized. Because baptism is, as we talked about last week, it's, it's both a proclamation identifying with Christ in his death and resurrection and it, it, it helps display to the world our new commitment to him, this new life that we have in him. So baptism is not just this ritual that we do because it's what we do, but it's actually packed with meaning, and it should push us into the rest of our Christian life. So if you haven't been baptized, we're in a baptism service in a couple of weeks. Even if that's not the right time for you, we'd love to dialogue with you about 
believer's baptism, and we do it by immersion because that's what we see all throughout Scripture. So if you haven't been baptized, immersed, given this picture of the drama of the gospel, dead in our sin, dead to our old self, raised to walk in newness of life, we want to invite you to consider that. Let us know. Fill it out on the back of your connection card. But probably for, for, for most in this room, maybe you have been baptized. So let me ask you, what's the significance of your baptism like today? Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance like we looked at last week that is a picture of your baptism, this new life you have in Christ? And in addition to that, are you engaged in the ministry of Jesus? You say, well, I get repentance and bearing fruit with baptism, but what's this talk about ministry? Well, here's the deal. What we're going to see, we're not going to read the next 20 chapters in Luke, but what we're going to see as we go through Luke is this baptism was pivotal. It served as the launching pad for the ministry of Jesus as he went on from his baptism. So it's an encouragement even to a new believer, someone newly baptized, hey, don't wait 100 years to get involved in the work of God. Be baptized and be about the business of the kingdom of God. What's your investment in the kingdom look like? I mean, I say this not to guilt anyone. Believe me, the gospel is so much better than, than guilt, all right? But, but let me just say this. You will never regret. You will never come to the end of your life and say, you know what, God, I did too much for you. I was too involved in your church. I spent too much time seeking to give myself away for the sake of others. So are you engaged in the cause? Has your baptism pushed you into obedient living and service toward God and others? This is what we see happening in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus was baptized and he was immediately launched out into his public ministry. But notice that, that when Jesus was baptized, it says in verse 21 that, that he immediately went to pray. Look at that. Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. And we see these three consecutive divine events. Now, let's just stop right there and don't miss the fact that Jesus was praying. It's a key theme in the Gospel of Luke. He emphasized it again and again and again. And if you ever want to diagnose your spiritual health, okay, it's like, you know, sometimes step on toes a little bit, stepping on my own as well. If you ever want to kind of diagnose your spiritual health, just ask the question, how's my prayer life? If you ever want to help a brother and sister in Christ, if you ever want to humble them maybe a little bit, say, how's your prayer life? Because it's through prayer that we draw near to God. It's, by, it's through prayer that we are sanctified and God works in us and speaks to us as we depend on him. So as Jesus is praying, these three awesome divine events happen. Number one, the heavens were open. Number two, the spirit descends like a dove. The spirit was not a dove, but it, it descended. It came down like a dove. And number three, you hear this voice, and this voice is so crucial in our passage. Look again at what it says. God speaks from heaven, and he says, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This statement is the most important declaration and the most pivotal moment of the baptism of Jesus. In fact, if you look at the grammar, everything is subordinate to this statement. You are my beloved son. 
in you I am well pleased. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, here's the big deal. Anyone familiar with the Old Testament in that day who heard this declaration, this announcement from God would have been going back to Isaiah 42.1 and Psalm 2 that are messianic texts pointing to who the Messiah would be. And so Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, that's Psalm 42, 1. 42, Isaiah 42, is actually the first of four servant songs in Isaiah 40, 49, 50, and 52 and 3 that point to the coming Messiah. So the Father speaks from him. He says, this is my beloved Son. I am well pleased with everything about him. What we have going on here is an endorsement of Jesus from God the Father. It's as if God the Father stamps his approval upon the life and the work of Jesus Christ, and he wants everyone to know this. And as we think about the stamp of approval being on the life of Christ, I mean, I think it's informative for us, right? We should want to be as those, if we've placed faith in Christ, that we're sons of, of, of God, children, because we've been brought into his family, adopted into his family. Surely we would want to be reflecting this son who brought him pleasure. We should want the stamp of God to be on our lives, no matter what the case may be, right? Who we are, stamped. What we do, stamped. If you're ever kind of wrestling with your motives or, or what you may be done, like, man, was, was that, you know, was that legit? Was that honoring to God? Just ask yourself the question, would God have stamped that thought, that desire, that conversation, the, the tone with which I spoke or wrote that email? Would God stamp that third dessert that I went back to, you know, the, the buffet to eat again? You know, what he had stamped at. So comprehensive. So don't miss here then in verse 22 that, that we have the presence of the Trinity right here. Jesus the Son, Spirit descends like a dove. The Father speaks from heaven. God is trying Father, Son, Spirit. I mean, our whole lives could be lived in light of the Trinitarian formula, as it's been called, from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. That's how we should live our life. Everything in our life comes from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And we see the presence of the Trinity right here. Now, move down to chapter 4, starting in verse 1. After the baptism, as he's affirmed by the Father, has been stamped with the Father's love and blessing and pleasure and approval and now filled with the Spirit, look at what it says in, in chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, this might surprise us a bit, right? God has just spoken of his pleasure in the Son. He's now filled with the Spirit, and it says that the Spirit... The Spirit leads him into the wilderness. 
And what happens in the wilderness, well, now look at verse 2. It says he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. And what happens there? Being tempted by the devil. So I want you to see as we think about how, and we're going to see how Christ triumphs over temptation, and it's the impetus for our own triumph over temptation, that everything is grounded in the fact that this is the divine Son, the one with whom the Father is well pleased, the one who is full of the Spirit. Because I hope you're already wrestling with, I hope you're already, I mean, I've been praying this morning that God would bring conviction, expose our heart, expose the sin in our life. Even the secret ones that no one else knows about. And you're asking yourself the question, how can I conquer sin in my life? And here is the way. It's through belief in this Son. The Son who has the Father's love all over him and the Spirit filling him. I can remember hanging out with a couple of friends in seminary. One was my pastor when I was kind of in town. I interned, actually I was the interim youth pastor at the church back in Owensboro, Kentucky, so I'd drive on the weekends, but in the week I was at FBC Fairdale, okay? My boy JP, Josh Powell, was the pastor there. He's about my age now. So he's about eight, nine years older than me. Anyway, uh, I can remember hanging out with JP and my other best friend, Josh Green. We're walking through the mall. All right, we're just kind of hanging out in the mall in Louisville, Kentucky. And I can remember JP, you know, inevitably, right? I mean, we live in the world, right? So we're in the mall and this scantily clad lady, you know, walks by. And he kind of says something, hey, fellas, you know, kind of an encouragement, right, to like, not look, not go there, not stay there, kind of thing. And I can remember begin wrestling because, you know, that, that, that sin of lust had been a, a real factor in my life. And so I, I can remember asking him, kind of building up the courage, because I, you know, we, we never want to admit our flaws. We never want to expose our sin. And so I, I, I kind of mustered up the courage, Josh, man, so how do you conquer that sin? In your life. And, and he said something I'll never forget. I'm always the one that's expecting like the, you know, the, the dissertation, the 12 points, the, the battling sin and conquering sin in my life. And you know what he said? He said, T-Mac, the only thing that's going to save us from that is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Knowing Christ Loving Christ, living for Christ. That's how we fight sin. That's how we battle sin. So first and foremost, before we go anywhere else, we believe in Christ. We're conquering it through, through Christ, who is, who is full of the Father's love and filled with the Spirit. Then, then number two, here, here's the second encouragement. Okay? Defeat every temptation through Christ with the Word and the Spirit. Defeat every temptation through Christ with the Word and the Spirit. Look, look again in verse 2. It says that he was led by the Spirit of the Lord for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. So here's the context. 40 days in the wilderness for Jesus. 
These 40 days remind us of the 40 years that the nation of Israel had spent wandering in the wilderness in disobedience and unbelief before God. And Luke tells us that Jesus was led into the wilderness and there he fasted. A much neglected discipline in individual Christian lives and in church life, by the way. And why would Jesus do this? I mean, remember, this is the beginning of his public ministry. He is going in the wilderness. He's led by the the Spirit into the wilderness so that he might seek after God. He wants more of God. He wants God's power on his life. And so he goes to fast and pray. And it says that when he was out in the wilderness, he was being tempted by the devil. Now, we're so prone to read really fast through the scripture. And we just assume that, you know, Jesus was hanging out in the wilderness 40 days, praying, fasting. And then at the end of the 40 days, he receives these three different temptations. Well, no, it seems to indicate from verse 2 that he was being tempted all throughout these 40 days. And we'll notice at the end, let me just go ahead and jump to verse 13 here, because what does it say at the end after these three major temptations? It says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So let me just let me just kind of paint a little picture of spiritual warfare and how Satan likes to operate and work in light of this text. Number one, Satan is not very nice. All right. God is for you. Satan is not for you. He exists to, to deceive. And, and, and Jesus, that's what Jesus calls him, the father of lies in John chapter 8. He takes that which is not very attractive and he seeks to make it attractive and appealing. He takes that which has no substance and he makes it look substantive. Satan works in all the ways that he possibly can to bring us down. And and listen to what C.S. Lewis says here in the preface to Screwtape Waters. This is is instructive for us. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, demons, Satan. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. Inhale a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And so have you fallen into one of these two camps? I mean, we do this as the church. We do this as Christians for some. Man, Satan and demons are behind every door and under every rock. We explain sin away because the devil made me do it. He's so powerful. He made me sin. But then for others of us, and maybe for more of us in this room, we tend to ignore his existence. As if there's not a battle raging all around us. I think we begin to see this in our personal lives as well. Listen, I know that that there may be some in the room here today. I know there are some in the room who are just weary of the battle. Tempted and tried. Dealing with addictions and, and that those sins that just continue to creep into your life. And so maybe you're feeling the, the, the heaviness of spiritual warfare, and you're all ears right now. I hope you are. But, but let me just say to everyone else you may be walking pretty closely with God today, 
You may kind of be firing on most all of your spiritual cylinders and kind of, you know, walking around with a little bit of, you know, spiritual swagger. You think, you know, things are good. If, if that's the case, let's remember what 1 Corinthians 10 12. Paul says there, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so we have to constantly be on guard because Satan is always, as we read, John read for us, he's always on the prowl. He never takes a day off. He looks to expose us when we are weakest and most vulnerable. We may be tired. We may be alone. We may be stressed out. Whatever the case may be, and he is looking to pounce on us. And at the same time, <laughs> He often comes when we least expect it. Sometimes when we are on the highest of spiritual highs. For Satan, any time is a good time to tempt us, to, to, to pull us away from our devotion and intimacy with Christ. Do you experience this in your life? Do you know the battle that rages day in and day out, week in and week out? There are resources for us. There is good news in the gospel. Well, let's, let's first talk about how temptation works. James points this out for us in James chapter 1, 13 through 15. This is what he said, all right? Good theology here, James. Let no one, when he is tempted, say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So I want you to not miss this here. James teaches us, again, good theology, a doctrine of sin. What happens in, 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 our, in temptation is that we are exposed to the world, we're exposed to some spiritual warfare where we're tempted to sin, and we can't say, listen, you cannot say, the devil made me do it, if you're in Christ. The devil cannot make you sin. The devil has no power over you. Sin, we sin, why do we sin? We sin because we want to. Because we have selfish desires that dwell within us. Theologians call this indwelling sin. And so temptation cannot lead us to sin, but sinful desires can lead us to take and grab the temptation, the lure that this is going to satisfy us in some particular kind of way. But now the good news 1 Corinthians 10, 13, what does it say? It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So listen, we have no excuse in Christ. God is faithful. Every single time you are tempted, whether it's late at night, whether it's early in the morning, whether it's in the middle of your day, God is faithful to provide a way out for you to say no to the temptation by his grace. He gives us that ability to say no. And in the gospel, it's even better than that. Because 
We have a God who is not detached from our reality, but a Savior, Jesus Christ, who has experienced everything that we have experienced, yet without sin. This is what Hebrews 4.15 says. For we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So now let's transition to look at some of these ways that he was tempted, the temptations of Christ. And I think as we go through, we're going to see how we are tempted in many of the same ways. Not in the exact same way, because we're not Jesus after all, all right? But in some of the the similar ways as he was tempted. So number one, the first major temptation we find in verses two through four is the temptation to self-satisfaction and mistrust in God's goodness and care. Look in verses 2 through 4. He says, For 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And you can might imagine, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And so the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, don't miss that theme that runs throughout. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. So, so Satan here is, is, is appealing to his physical desires. But, but there's, there's much more going on than just kind of our animal instincts, our physical desires here. Because what Satan is, it's a, there's nothing inherently evil about, you know, partaking of some bread, right? Be encouraged when you go to lunch this afternoon, you know, you can feel good about that. Nothing evil in a slice of bread. But what's going on here is that Satan was tempting Jesus to use messianic power to provide for himself rather than trusting in the provision of God. And this is what we do as well, right? We question the goodness of God. We question the care of God. And we go after that which God has prohibited. So it doesn't matter if it is, as we're talking about, the sin of lust, pornography, premarital sex, you name the sin. It doesn't matter if it's substance abuse, some kind of addiction that you're wrestling with or just kind of cheap thrills, whatever the case may be, we go after these things because we want satisfaction in them rather than waiting, being patient, and finding our satisfaction in God. I mean, when we're tempted to sin sexually, it is at its fundamental uh, essence, it is a failure to trust in God's care and goodness for you because you don't think he has something better for you whether that's today or in the future, if he wills that you live out according to his plan in the context of marriage. You say the same thing about any sin that appeals to our physical desire. We seek after the self-satisfaction and we fail to trust in God's good care for us. Number two, the second major temptation was the self-promotion and false worship. Look in verses five through seven. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So here the temptation is to self-promotion and to false worship. Do you ever crave power? Do you, do you ever want to be esteemed in the sight of others? Man, I'm the, I'm the brightest person in the room. 
I'm the most talented person in the room. I have the best ideas. I can get the job done a little bit more efficiently and proficiently than everyone else. And not only can I do that, but I want to be recognized for that. I want people to know that I am the man, that I am the woman. You know what I'm saying? And so we're constantly looking for little ways, even if it's subtle, even if no one else knows the thoughts that we're having. And we want to be elevated. We want to be recognized. We just went to a conference this week for church planters. And, and you know, a couple days there, and we got to, to hang out with some of our old friends and be encouraged. And, you know, John and Abby and I got to lead some, some breakout sessions, some workshops. I got to share for it cut me like 12 minutes, you didn't give me much time. But, but even those 12 minutes, you know what I'm saying? I was like, man, I was, I was after I was done, how'd that go? So I asked me this question, how did that go? Man, was that, was that good? Did people like, did people benefit from that? I wonder if someone's going to come up to me and affirm me and endorse what I just shared with them and tell me how great it was. But what if? What if, what if my chief concern was not, man, if, if anyone approves this, but, but what, if, what if God was pleased with that? What if God was pleased with what I shared? If God was pleased with, with what I did in those 12 moments? And doesn't this translate to your life, whether it's in, in, at your job, in your home? Man, I just want to be recognized. I cleaned the dishes for the first time in three months. Men, maybe. So this is craving for, for self-promotion to elevate ourselves. And, and the idol of approval and recognition is so subtle but so dangerous. So there's this, this temptation for Christ to, to, to rush the game plan, to have all things which were under his jurisdiction anyway. So we're tempted to false worship, but God is the only one worthy of our worship. Then finally, the third page of temptation in verses 9 through 11 says that he took him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Now, we get self-satisfaction, we get self-promotion, but what is this business about Satan saying, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple? What is this about? I want to quote Russ Moore, who says this, what Satan is asking Jesus, and what Satan is asking us, is to test by sight what God asks us to accept by faith. To test by sight what God asks us to attempt, except by faith. And so you have here both the desire for self-protection, but also a mistrust in God's plan. So, so again, the timing of all this, maybe prove, prove that you're the Messiah, prove that you're the beloved son, prove that God would never let you scratch your foot against the stone. And Jesus says, Look here, you want me to put God to the test. And I'm not willing to do that. Because I trust in his plan for all things, including this life that he has given me to live. And so, as we think about that, we, we often want to experience that which we should embrace by faith. 
Every proposition and promise of God must be accepted by faith. So, so, so do you see what Satan's doing here? Over and over and over again, he is pushing him toward unbelief and, and not trusting in who the Father is and his love for him. You see that? It's the Father's love that pushes us to obedience. It's the Spirit's fullness that enables us to resist sin. So very practically then, let's talk about how to battle temptation. And I'm not going to give you a formula this morning. All right? I'm just going to give you a simple answer that I think is very biblical, not only in Matthew uh, 4 and Luke 4, but throughout the scriptures. Here it is. We battle temptation like Jesus did by the word and full of God's spirit. That's it. That's the simple answer. By the word and by the spirit. First off, we see that it has to be by the word. Every time Jesus was tempted, what did he do? Let's look back. In verse 4, when he's tempted to turn the stone into bread, he says to Satan, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. In, in verse 8, he, he quotes scripture again, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then in verse 12, he quotes Deuteronomy again, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So this is Jesus knowing the word, because listen, if you don't know the word, how are you going to fight with the Word? You've got to know the Word, but it's not just enough to know it and kind of be these you know, little Bible answer people walking around with all this knowledge of Scripture. Jesus not only knew the Word, but he wanted to live the Word. He, he took it so that he might apply it to his life in faithfulness and obedience to God. And so Ephesians 6, 17 says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We have to know the Word. We have to live the Word. Because what is going on here? Satan is often even using the Word. He is twisting it, deceiving, seeking to deceive Jesus with his own Word. But Jesus knows the Word and he fights with it. And then he does all of this by the Spirit. Romans 8, 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And so we put sin to death by the Spirit. We put temptation to death by the Spirit. We resist temptation when it comes our way, and we replace it with God's truth. We, be we believe the truth of God and resist the lies of Satan. And when we resist and replace, it can lead us to the place where we can then rejoice. Rejoice in God's goodness and His favor to us that we have fought against temptation in our lives. Can you do that this week? Can you just get into the word and soak it up and say, God, I need your spirit to fill me and lead me and empower me to live my life for you this week? No matter what the temptation, all those temptations that have been going around, swirling in your mind as we've heard from God's word this morning, you can do it by his grace. And so let me close by asking and answering this final question. Why is putting sin and temptation to death so important? Why? Why is sin, putting sin and temptation to death so important? And here's the reason. Obviously, God's glory is at stake, but, but God's glory through his mission is at stake. 
as we live pure lives before God, we are usable vessels in his hands to do his work, to bless others. This is what we see as we go throughout Luke, and as we read Paul's letters, he is constantly emphasizing this, instruments in God's hands. But there's something even deeper than that here. Not just our mission, but the mission of Christ. And to see that, I want you to take, take you back right quick to the genealogy. I know most of you thought I skipped the genealogy at the end of chapter 3. Who thought I skipped the genealogy? Be honest. Yeah, that's too bad. Y'all don't know me well enough yet. After all these months and years, what's up? Genealogy. We're not going to read it, by the way, but let's start it and finish it. Verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son, 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 verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, there are different genealogical accounts in Matthew and Luke. Why is that? Because we think that Matthew is tracing the royal succession, the Davidic line. Whereas Luke is, is just working through uh, maybe the, the prophet Nathan. And what we really need to understand here is that Matthew emphasized that Jesus is the one who is united with the Jewish race. He is the son of Abraham. That's where Matthew stops. But Luke stops not with Abraham, but with Adam, who is the son of God. That teaches us two things. Number one. That Jesus is a Savior for all of the world. Jesus identifies with all of humanity. But then number two, where Luke positions this genealogy between the baptism and between the temptation account, I have to see that we should remember back to the son of Adam who was not tempted in the wilderness but was tempted in the garden and who gave in to the temptation of the serpent through disobedience, but Jesus, who is the true and better Adam, conquered Satan's temptation there in the wilderness. And this is good news for us. Why? Because this is not the most crucial victory for Jesus. I'm about to get loose and excited up here, all right? The most crucial victory for Jesus was not won in the wilderness. It was won at the cross. But, if he had not won this victory in the wilderness, there would have been no victory on the cross. Jesus is the sinless Savior. He would not be worthy of being our Redeemer unless he was perfectly righteous. So never forget in the gospel that Jesus did not simply nail your sin to the cross and cancel your debt and the penalty of your sin, but he also has given us his righteousness. The active obedience of Christ in Luke chapter 4 is what I need today because now when God looks on me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Do you know the righteousness of Christ? Have you embraced the righteousness of the true and better Adam, the true and better Israel, the true and better everything. He is what we need. We can conquer temptation. We can triumph over temptation because he is the one who triumphed and he is the one who fills us by his spirit today. Let's pray.
God, we pray that you would take these truths and root them deep into our hearts. And God, in addition to that, we, we, we pray just for one another here. What a shame it would be to kind of hear a sermon and, and just to, to leave, to kind of go and do our thing. So Lord, would you, would you expose our sin and our heart right now? Would you show us the ways that we have found it? Would you enable us to, to see it and to, to, to hate it? And to forsake it and to turn to you and ask you to, to forgive us and to fill us and, to, and to, to, to walk in obedience to everything that you have commanded us. God, we pray that we would know the power of the gospel and that we would live in light of the power of that gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.